You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, reading today from Psalm 5. For the director of music for pipes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For you too I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful Lord you detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of your enemies. Make your way straight for me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them forever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour with a shield. Thanks, Rob. Please keep your Bibles open to Psalm 5, where if you're on the welcome card, you'll see that the passage is there, as well as an outline to help you navigate today's sermon. As we come to think about God's word, let's pray and ask him to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you reveal yourself to us uh, through these ancient poems, these ancient songs. Uh, And so please uh, speak to us clearly through Psalm 5 so that we would uh, be wise for living in your world and wise for knowing Jesus our Saviour. Amen. The book of Psalms has a lot to say about enemies. King David seemed to have heaps of them. He's always being attacked by people. Now, we might not have people in our own lives that we would call enemies. That's a fairly strong word, isn't it? But there are certainly people that we don't like or people that we think are a bit dodgy. There are people who make life hard for us, people who hurt us, people who oppose us. So how should we pray about these people? Should we pray against them, you know, that God would judge them? Or should we pray for them, that you know, God would lead them to admit their wrongdoing, to even receive forgiveness from God? Sometimes there can be a real tension between uh, wanting to pray that people would be saved but also pray that God would bring justice. And what we're going to see today is that there doesn't necessarily need to be a tension between those two things. In fact, Christians can actually pray for justice, but we need to do so with humility because God is the one who will determine the outcome. And this is what we see in Psalm 5. But before we get into the topic of justice, I want to show you how this psalm begins with an example to us all. And that's because it's about offering up a morning prayer. You can see here our artwork inspired by Psalm 5, our artwork of the week. 
and a picture of someone starting the day with prayer. You'll notice that the psalm title, uh, like Psalm 4, it's for the director of music. But this time it's not to be accompanied by stringed instruments but by pipes. I think what's more important though is that while this was originally a private prayer written by David, it's meant to be used for public worship. And so that shows that this prayer, even though it's kind of a private moment between David and his God, it's still intended to teach us and to be a model for us. So let's look at this morning prayer that David offered up to his God. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 in your Bible. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. David is praying here to the covenant God of Israel. We haven't actually spoken about this yet in our psalm sermon series, so it's time for a quick reminder when you see that word Lord in all capital letters. It's actually indicating that in the Hebrew text it was God's special covenant name there. No one actually knows how to pronounce it. Uh, The Jews, whenever they're reading out the, the scriptures in Hebrew, they'd say, the Lord, which is why we say the Lord in capitals. Maybe it's something like Yahweh, you may have heard that word. But in any case, when you see it, you need to think this is God's special name that are revealed to the people of Israel so that they could be reminded they were in a, in a relationship with him. And so in verse 2, you can see that David here is speaking to the Lord using his personal name and he says that this Lord is his king and his God. He's admitting that the God he's in a relationship with has sovereign rule over him. Let's check out the next verse, verse 3. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. So this is a morning prayer. Do you do this in the morning? Do you pray first thing before you even get out of bed? I mean, what a great way to start the day. Before you've done anything good or bad, acknowledge that God is your king and remember that he loves you. And then offer up the day to him. Ask him to help you bring your worries to him. And so why not this week lay your requests before God each morning and see the ways in which he uses that to grow you spiritually, to to bless you, to reassure you, to give you the confidence to face each day. And yet this can be particularly helpful when you're worried about how people are going to treat you that day. Remember as I said earlier, this... This psalm is a prayer about enemies and justice. And so as we go through the rest of this psalm, we'll see that David shows us, he models to us how to pray for justice. The first step is to acknowledge God's own holiness and justice. That's gone too far, sorry. So we see this in verses 4 to 6. David lists three attitudes of God and three actions of God. We'll begin with the attitudes. We see first of all that God takes no pleasure in wickedness. Secondly, he hates all who do wrong. And thirdly, he detests bloodthirsty and deceitful people. Now, that might seem like a bit of a shock. I mean, we get that God doesn't delight in uh, wickedness But when it comes to people who do wicked deeds, David says that God actually hates them. He he hates these people. If you heard the phrase, 
hates the sin but loves the sinner. That doesn't seem to be God's motto. You see, he, he hates sin so much that he hates those who do sin because you can't really separate a person from their deeds. And so God isn't just angry at injustice in the world or wickedness in the world. He's angry at the people who commit that injustice and that wickedness. And what will he do about this? Well, verses 4 to 6 show us three actions of God. First off, the evil are not welcome with God and that means that he'll cast them out. Second, the arrogant can't stand in his presence. And third, he destroys those who tell lies. The picture here is of a morally perfect, just and holy God. God is good and there's no evil in him. God is light and there's no darkness in him. And so he can't have dark, evil people in his presence. And more than that, he must judge because he is so holy that he must eventually wipe out wickedness. He must destroy liars. Now this might raise an objection in your mind. Surely God can't judge us because he's meant to be loving, right? Well, that depends on how you define love. Here's a question. Is God like Santa Claus or is he like a loving father? Santa Claus gives children presents regardless of how they behave. I mean, yes, parents will use Santa to threaten and control kids, but children soon learn pretty quickly that there'll always be presents under the tree on Christmas Day. But a loving father will warn children and then give them consequences, follow through on them, so that they can learn about the right sort of behaviour and attitude and how to live well in the world. They'll soon learn that that judgement can lead to growth. You see, God loves us so much that he warns us when we do the wrong thing. He doesn't want us to live that way. And if we keep doing that, he will punish us as an outworking of his love and his holiness. So God must judge, otherwise he wouldn't be holy and it's actually the loving thing for him to do. God loves us so much that he will judge the world and this is how justice will one day fill the world. So the first step to praying for justice is to acknowledge that God is the one who's holy and just. If he wasn't, then we'd have no confidence that he'd actually ever hear and answer our prayers. We'd have no confidence that he could do anything about injustice. When imagine that if God was loving like Santa Claus, then there'd be no hope, would there? The next step is to acknowledge your dependence on God's mercy. I mean, here's the thing. If you've just prayed about how holy God is and he can't have sinful people in his presence, then where does that leave you? I mean, are you willing to say that you're a good person, you're perfect and just and upright and holy and you can just walk into God's presence? Well, this is why we need the next two verses. Have a look at verse 7. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down toward your holy temple. You think about it. After David has just said that God is holy and just, he'll judge the wicked, does he then say... But as for me, God, because of my great goodness, because of my holiness, I will come into your house. Is that what he says? No. See, it's by God's great love and mercy. 
In fact, there's a special Hebrew word there. It's one of my favourite words. I'm going to share it with you all. Some of you already know this word. Whoops, I've gone too far again. Okay, the word is hesed, but it's got like a guttural H. So it's like a hesed, hesed. It's actually quite fun to say. So I want you to all say it with me, okay? The count of three, we're going to say chesed. So one, two, three, chesed. Some of you are not enjoying that at all, are you? Well, let me say, it may not be a pleasant word to listen to, but the meaning is amazing and wonderful. It's about God's deep, loving kindness, his, his commitment to his people, his gracious loyalty. It's the word that's used to describe his covenant with us. The covenant commitment that God has to David is one that's based on the Lord's own mercy. He provides a way for the imperfect David to be in relationship with him. And so David can enter God's house. David can pray to the temple. Now, if there are any nitpickers here today, you might have a question in your mind. If you know the Bible history, when David was alive, there was no temple, was there? Remember, it was his son Solomon who built the temple. Uh, There was a a tabernacle at the time which David had brought into Jerusalem and he set it up and that's where worship would happen. And so this leads some to say, well, obviously then David couldn't have written this psalm or maybe it was kind of edited and updated later. Like maybe David used the word tabernacle and then in later editions of the Psalter they updated the temple. Let me share two points for your consideration for maybe the one or two people who actually care about this, but I'm going to share these points. The first is, this is poetry, isn't it? David's free to use the word that he wants. He's free to use the tent of the tabernacle. He's free to call that a temple if he chooses to. But the second is that that word temple just can mean palace because it's thought of as a divine dwelling place. It's where divine royalty lives. And so the tabernacle in Jerusalem, that tent of meeting, actually is the place where God dwelt in a special way. The Israelites would go and offer worship there and so it is a temple of sorts. Anyway, moving on. David continues his prayer in verse 8 by asking that God would help him to live the right way. Have a look. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. You see, David again expresses his dependence upon God, not for forgiveness this time, but for the daily strength to live the right way, of the way that pleases God. He has many enemies and he's tempted to stray from the path of righteousness. In fact, he wants to be like that person from Psalm 1. Remember that? That that does not walk in step with the wicked, doesn't stand in the way that sinners take. This is a pretty humble prayer. David, the king of Israel, admits that even he is a sinner and relies upon God's mercy. He also admits that he needs God's help to live as a godly man. Because Christians, we can pray the same sort of prayer too because, well, we rely on the same God, don't we? But we don't look to the tabernacle. We don't look to the temple as the place where we see forgiveness. Where do we look? We look to the cross, don't we? As we saw before, God is so holy, he can't have bad people in his presence. In fact, he will destroy them. But God had an amazing plan. He sent his son to earth to live amongst us, to live for us. And Jesus always did the right thing. 
He was holy in all of his life. He never lied. He never acted arrogantly. He wasn't bloodthirsty. Yet he still died. But it wasn't for his sin. It was for our sin. Instead of us being destroyed and cut off from God's presence, Jesus was. He suffered God's punishment and experienced separation from his heavenly Father. But then he rose back to life three days after he died on the cross. His resurrection shows that he completed his work that he now bridges the gap between God and humanity. This is where we see God's chesed today. We see God's great love for us, his covenantal faithfulness, his immense kindness. We see his commitment to us because he did not spare his own son. We can be confident that he will look after us. Let's just pause for a moment, take a step back. I want to think about this psalm as a whole. Do you remember in our second sermon in this series, I said that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of like lenses through which we can read the whole Psalter. We had this, this image here. Psalm 1 is the lens of wisdom. Psalm 2 is the lens of Messiah. As we bring those mindsets to this psalm, we can see you know, Psalm 1 encourages us to meditate on this psalm as instruction on how to pray about our enemies. But Psalm 2 encourages us to meditate on this psalm as a reminder that, well, we are God's enemies and we need a saviour. We need the Messiah to make us right with God. We have wisdom and we have Messiah. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 help us to kind of view the psalms, to interpret them, to understand them, apply them. And so this approach uh, helps us to see where this model prayer sits within salvation but also understand our place within the salvation story. It drives us to see Jesus and to see how Jesus wants us to live. It keeps us humble in our prayers to God. And so I think getting this straight in our heads is really important because then we can deal with another objection that might come to mind. So it could be thought that Christians who pray for God to judge others are just arrogant hypocrites. But as we've just seen, David relies on God's mercy. So too do Christians. See, we can pray for justice, but we do so humbly because we know that we're not better than anyone else. We're simply asking God to be who he is. And we should keep praying that God will lead us in his righteousness, that we would live godly lives every day. The third step for praying for justice is to specify your enemy's sin but to also acknowledge that their sin is really against God. Have a look at verse 9. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. You notice that David has a real emphasis here on words. And then back in verse 6, he said that God will destroy liars. So now he's showing that he's not just thinking about lies in general, but his enemies in particular, who he believes to be liars. He says their words can't be trusted. Their hearts are filled with malice. They're plotting destruction. Deep down they have these evil plans against David. And then he says that their throats are like open graves. And if you open up a grave, what do you find in there? Death and decay, not life. 
And finally, their tongues tell lies. So these men are plotting against David. They're telling lies about him. And so it's possible to think that these are his political opponents. Maybe leaders of foreign nations or maybe even rulers and officials within Israel itself who aren't happy with him. David is being specific here. But at the same time, we we know that words are the foundation of relationships. Uh, Words are usually the place where we begin when we attack others and hurt them. And so we can actually pray along the same lines as David. When we come to list our grievances or the sins of our enemies, those who oppose us, we have to also remember what David says at the end of verse 10. They have rebelled against you. You see, sometimes we can view God as a policeman who enforces the law. You know, when someone sins against us, we we call him in so that he can arrest them and sort things out. But that's a bit too impersonal. You see, sin is indeed law-breaking, but it's not just breaking God's rules, his laws, it's breaking relationship with God. When we do the wrong thing, God takes it personally and so God must judge. And so that means then when we come to pray to God, we actually need to be clear on how people have sinned against God. You see, when you speak concretely to him, when you identify the root issue, you might realise that, well, perhaps it's just you're feeling upset because someone disagreed with you. Maybe they haven't actually sinned against you. See, pausing and doing this process can help us to separate out our feelings from the facts. It's not always going to be the case, is it? Sometimes we will see what someone has done against us. And so when we identify that sin, even just a kind of broad idea, we might not be able to specify it completely, but then we can bring it to the Lord. Because you see they've ultimately rebelled against their creator. Now here's another objection. It might seem that all this talk about sin and judgment is just so you know, narrow-minded and intolerant. How can we say that about people? Because after all, here's the objection. People aren't that bad, you know. Deep down, they're good. That's not the picture that the Bible gives us. You may have actually noticed that this, uh, this verse is quoted by Paul in the letter that he wrote to the Romans. In chapter 3 of Paul's letter, he says, There's no one who is righteous, not even one, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And then listen to verse 13. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. This is a a painful reminder that we all use our words at some time to harm and deceive people. God hates liars and we've all told our fair share of lies. Even one lie is enough for God to judge us. And so it reminds us again that we aren't perfect, we aren't good people and so we must rely on God's loving mercy. Even if we try our best, we need to remember that God is perfect and holy and cannot have sin in his presence. We all deserve God's judgment. We're not saying that we're better than other people. We should actually be humble. We all have a problem, we all need help. The fourth step in praying for justice is to ask God to judge justly. That's what David asks for in verse 10. Have a look. Declare them guilty, O God. 
Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. And if you weren't feeling uncomfortable already, surely you're starting to feel uncomfortable now, right? This is a bit fuller. David wants God to bring his enemies to justice. First of all, he wants God to declare them guilty, to actually say, yes, these men have done the wrong thing and they should be punished. Now, we can do this in our own prayers when we ask God to reveal someone's sin to them or to expose it. We want God's opinion on the matter to be made known to them. We want them to be convicted by God, to be convicted in their heart that they have sinned. Secondly, David wants God to cause them to fall. In fact, he wants their plots and intrigues against David to be their very downfall. How do we do this in our own prayers? What's maybe when we ask God that their sins would be their own undoing? Perhaps that they'll reap the consequences of their actions. If they're being dishonest in their business practices, we might pray that their business will suffer or fail. If they're gossiping about others, we might pray that their manipulations might backfire on them and they perhaps find themselves with no one left to listen to their sinful chatter. Thirdly, David wants God to banish them. Remember back in verses 4 and 5, David said that God can't have sinful people in his presence. And so David is asking God to drive these people away. We can do this in our own prayers when we ask that God would make it clear to people that they're not right with God, they're under his judgement. It might be that there are certain people who claim to be Christians but they're not living as Christians, there's nothing consistent about their lives and so we pray that God would make it clear to them, maybe even drive them out of the church if that's what's needed. And what's also really interesting is that David says God should banish them for their many sins. And the Hebrew literally says, by the abundance of their sins, drive them away. But verse 7 literally says, by the abundance of your love, I enter your house. See how David's contrasting those two relationships to God. You see, those who are persistent in their sin will be driven away from God because of their abundance. But those who trust in God will be brought in because of his abundant love, despite our abundant sins. We have two options then. We can either rely on our efforts, which are pretty poor and pathetic, or we can rely on God's efforts, which will bring us true and lasting forgiveness. Maybe this raises another objection in your mind. But something like this. Instead of praying for justice for people, shouldn't we be praying that they be forgiven? After all, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this brings us back to the question we began this sermon with. Should we pray for people to be forgiven or should we pray for justice? Well, I don't necessarily think that they're different things. It's not as if kind of the Jews were all about revenge and hating on people, but Christians were on about forgiveness and love. Now, we see both justice and mercy throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus himself condemned the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He also prayed that God would forgive his enemies. 
So praying for justice is just asking God to act in line with his own character. And we must remember that, first of all, we don't ask to do the judging ourselves because when it comes to justice, that's God's job. It's about God, it's not about us. I'm sure you may have been hurt by someone. I'm sure you may have suffered injustice. But it's not about you getting even or your sense of justice being satisfied. I mean, note what Romans 12 verse 19 says. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the key. Certainly, pray to God for justice. That's a good thing to do. But it's his job to bring it about if he chooses to and by the means that he chooses. The second point is that God may decide to forgive your enemies and show them mercy. It's actually why Jesus died, so that God can forgive people. And so justice is still served, it's just the punishment happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. And the third point to remember is that when David is praying for justice, it may not necessarily be about eternal condemnation. We tend to think in just that category, either they're being saved forever or condemned forever. But sometimes justice might be about, well, David's enemies having their plots unearthed and defeated. God may bring justice for specific acts, situations in someone's life, but overall show mercy to them on the last day. Both can happen. So should Christians pray that God would show mercy to people and save them from their sins? Of course. Please make sure you hear me saying that. It is perfectly fine, good and godly to pray that God would have mercy. But can we also pray for justice? Yes. I mean, you think about it in general, we can pray that God would hold back corrupt leaders in our society to punish abusers and predators, that he would stem the tide of secularism and anti-God philosophies. We can pray for those things. That's good and right and proper. But when it does come to praying for specific individuals, we do need to be a bit careful. We can pray that someone might be brought to justice for their crimes, but we can also, uh, we need to remember that God will choose what their ultimate standing before him will be and he may very well choose to forgive them. So I might go like this. I've tried to draft my own prayer following David's model. Maybe this is the sort of prayer you might say as you're sitting on your bed. Here we go. Just pretend... This is a private moment between me and God and I'm praying. This is a made-up story, just in case you're wondering. Uh, Dear God, you are a just and patient God. Apart from your patience and kindness, I would be destined for destruction. You know that my friend has been very impatient lately. He yells at me when I forget things. He drives aggressively on the way to events and it frightens me. He complains about people at work who don't meet their deadlines in advance and he started reporting them to our supervisor. Please reveal to him his sin and judge accordingly. Expose his heart so that he would either repent or suffer your consequences. May he learn patience or may he learn the cost of impatience. And as for me, Lord, fill me with joy as you protect me by your name. Amen. You see, what I did there, kind of following David's model, Acknowledging who God is, 
identifying what's happening, praying that God would judge according to his ways and that God would continue to watch over me. I'm not saying that these sort of prayers are easy. It can be hard when it's Christians who are hurting us. How do we pray about these things? But God will grant us wisdom. We can even say, God, please help me as I pray this prayer. The final step in praying for justice is to ask God to protect those who take refuge in him. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. To put it simply, ending uh, ending the prayer this way is again reminding us that we are dependent on God. We're even dependent on God for ongoing protection and we ask that he will shield us with his favour. Again, it's about his love and mercy. We're praying that he will protect us by his mercy from the attacks of our enemies and from God's own judgement against him. And when we take refuge in God, when we love his name and his honour, we will find that we have endless reasons to sing and to rejoice. Is it okay for Christians to pray that God would bring people to justice? Of course. But we must do so with humility. This means admitting that God is king and he will judge how he chooses. We have to remember that we too deserve God's judgement, yet he's been merciful to us in Jesus. And so that should also cause us to be humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, this is a hard psalm. There is much that might trouble us, raise objections in our mind. And so please help us to listen well, to sit under it, to meditate upon it, so that we might see what it means for you to be holy and just, for you to hate sin, to hate sinners, but to show mercy to sinners despite their sins. I pray for any of us who are facing enemies, people who are opposing them, that you would help them to see how they can use Psalm 5 to cry out to you for justice and to humbly trust in you, to rest in you. And so as they pray that sort of prayer, may it bring them some peace and calm in their hearts. Thank you again for this psalm. Thank you for all that you're teaching us as we study uh, these ancient poems and songs. Amen.